But right now we're going to be in Isaiah 43 as we kind of wrap up the new year. I want to I start with a poem by a woman named Maggie Smith. Not Maggie Smith, who is Minerva McGonigal. Maggie Smith, who graduated from Ohio Wesleyan University and then Ohio State University with a Master of Fine Arts and lives now somewhere in Ohio. It's a poem called Good Bones. And it says this, it says, life is short, though I keep this from my children. Life is short and I've shortened mine a thousand delicious, ill-advised ways, a thousand deliciously ill-advised ways I'll keep from my children. The world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate. Though I keep this from my children, for every bird there is a stone thrown at a bird, for every loved child, a child broken, bagged, sunk in a lake. Life is short and the world is at least half terrible, and for every kind stranger there is one who would break you, though I keep this from my children. I am trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking through a real, cuss word, chirps on about good bones. Any decent realtor walking you through a real, chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful, right? You could make this place beautiful. They may not be the words that we want to hear as we end one year and start a next, but they're probably going to be the most honest that you hear today. Life is short. And the world is at least 50% terrible, and that's a conservative estimate. The idea that the world is half terrible, at least, seems rather cynical, but while it's exaggerated, it certainly isn't all that far away from our lived experience. It still gets to the truth that hard things, bad things, painful things will happen in 2018, will happen either to you or to those you love. The way of Jesus is not insurance against the bad things that happen to us. The gospel is not Novocaine or morphine. Jesus, who learned obedience through what he suffered, tells us that suffering is a natural part of the way the world works. He says the rain falls on the just and the unjust alike. Jesus says that suffering is a necessary course, a necessary class when we enroll in the school of discipleship and we choose to follow him. He says, if anybody would come after me, they must take up their cross. He did not say throw pillow. He did not say beanbag. He said, you must take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus says that suffering is part and parcel to our lives as his people. This much is true. The world is at least 50% terrible. But what is also true is, that Ma- is what Maggie S- Smith says are the good bones in our world, holding our lives and the world and the universe together, holding them up, if you will, are the good bones running through the fabric of the universe. And though the world may be half terrible, or at least significantly so, there will be beauty in the coming year because the world has good bones. You will laugh, you will eat steak, you will enjoy sunsets, there will be grace and beauty and joy and sweetness. Because even if our lives are terrible, there are good bones holding it up. And in the passage we're looking at today, Isaiah 43, the good bones are given a name. The good bones are given a name and a face in the face of God. Look with me at Isaiah 43, verses one through seven. Isaiah 43, one through seven. 
But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am Yahweh, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you, I give men in return for you and peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, who I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Isaiah 43 is is a pretty simple passage. It's a message kind of gets across that the Lord, his desire is to redeem, that we need not be afraid because he is in our midst. That message gets across, but, but, but it's also a pretty complex passage simply because it's a little bit like a ping pong ball in that text of names and things that God is doing or wants to do in our lives. Somebody in one of my preaching classes says that sometimes when you're writing a sermon, it's like building a chicken coop in a tornado. You're kind of just grabbing at anything that you get your hands on and nailing it down, that's kind of what this text is like. It, it's like this swirling of truth that you kind of just grab at and, and, and try to hold on to. But, but catch this, that it, Isaiah is writing to a people who have come to discover that the world is a lot more than 50% terrible. Old, the Old Testament story kind of works like this, which if you don't know that, that's okay, because I mean, I was raised in church and I don't feel like I got that until about 10 years ago, that God's people, Israel, we're given, uh, we're given a law, we're entered into a relationship with Yahweh, with, with the Lord, uh, and there were kind of some boundaries set on that relationship known as the law and, and, and the covenant. And, and Israel did, generally speaking, a really terrible job uh, at, at keeping within the covenant. And so God would send prophets who were kind of like the line judges of the covenant, right? They would blow the whistle when Israel stepped outside the line of the covenant. Isaiah is one of those prophets. Isaiah is letting them know that their ongoing disobedience to the Lord is going to lead them to a bad place, into captivity. And in fact, in the book of Jeremiah, it does. But the book of Isaiah is fascinating. First of all, um, there's a lot of overlap between the book of Isaiah and the overarching book of the Bi- books of the Bible. The Bible is 66 books long. Isaiah is 66 chapters long. So some people think that's significant, although to be truth be told that uh, the chapters and verses in your Bible were added by some guy in England in about the 15th century riding on the back of a horse, which is why sometimes you're reading and it's like right in the middle of a word, right? Um, uh, and, and so... Um, and, and so Isaiah, the first half is kind of gloom and doom with speckles of brightness, a lot of Christmas passages actually. The last half of Isaiah starts to kind of turn the tide and the tone changes. And, and by the time you kind of get to the back, back end of Isaiah, it kind of feels like a train going down a hill. It's just got all of this forward momentum carrying it forward. And we're kind of catching the book of Isaiah about a quarter of the way down that hill when, when Isaiah is telling these people, the world, yes, is going to be 50, more than 50% terrible, but here is the good news in it. Here are the good bones that I want you to see. There he names at least three. And the first of those good bones is who God says I am. This Sunday and last Sunday, I'm on the point sermons. I, let's not, I get bored with that. Let's not keep doing that. But anybody, I, Sarah's like, why are you doing this? I don't normally do like one, two, three, but it's, I don't know, it's Christmas and I'm tired. Um, 
The first of these, of these good bones is who God says I am or what God thinks of you, your identity. If you look at Isaiah 43 and read back through that, you're going to see all of these names that God has for you. When, you. when you cross God's mind, Isaiah 43 is a list of what God thinks of you, that you are redeemed and formed and created and called by name and precious in God's eyes and honored and loved and called by his name. Isaiah finds great meaning in our createdness. In fact, he begins and ends this little section with that. Fun fact, Isaiah 43, 1 through 7 is a chiastic poem. It goes A, B, C, B prime, A prime. This is a common Hebrew thing where the center of the text is what matters most, and then and second is the top and bottom, the A, the a and the A prime. And the A and the A prime in this text are that we are formed and made by God. It begins, it begins saying, it says, here, 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 thus says the Lord, he who created you, he who formed you, it ends in verse seven with whom I created, whom I formed and made. And maybe that feels bland to you. Maybe it feels dull to you that God made you. But the next time you meet an artist, talk to them about how they feel about what they have made. Talk to them about their possessiveness, their ownership, their affection for what they have created. This is why we're not allowed to touch paintings in art museums, right? Because people don't, I, don't do that. People don't like that. Uh, don't go to the butler and try to touch it. You'll be escorted out. Because the artist feels, feels that, that what they have created is honorable and, and precious. Uh, and, and that's where the text continues. It says that we are loved and redeemed and honored and precious in the sight of God. You are precious to God. When we were living in Illinois, um, they redid, uh, right before I got on staff, they had redone the youth room. They called it the 601. And it was a lot of volunteer labor, a.k.a. the pastor and his wife were just there all the time. And they, like, dug up floors and ripped down walls and tons of garbage bags and all this stuff. And a few days into this project, uh, Brianne, our pastor's wife, looks down at her wedding ring and the setting was gone. The, the, the stone was missing. Uh, and so they went out to the dumpster and took all of the bags apart and they're looking in the shop vac and sifting through that stuff and they're looking in every vacuum bag and every, I mean, on their hands and knees with flashlights to see if it'll catch the light. Um, I, I didn't finish the story at the last campus and I don't think anybody felt, heard the rest of the sermon. They did not find it. They did not find it. That anxiety and that intensity and that deep searching came from the fact that that ring was, so, that, that diamond, that little piece of clear rock was precious to them. That is how God thinks of you. With the care and attention that they gave to looking for that lost diamond is the care and attention that God gives you all of the time. You are precious in God's eyes, not for anything that you have done or will do. Hear me on this. There is nothing that you can do to make God love you less Flip side, there is nothing you can do to make God love you more. God is not impressed by your good behavior and your bad behavior does not make God second guess his relationship with you. He's not like, did not see that coming. I think I will just walk away. No, that's not how God is. You cannot make him love you more or make him love you less. And ultimately, we are called by name. In fact, Isaiah 43 says we're called by two names. I don't, it says at the beginning that we are called by name, and at the end that we are called by his name. Uh, in a crowd of a thousand Joshes, Josh, no, Josh, that Josh there, God knows. 
and a crowd of a million Vanessas, he knows this one in particular by name. And, and my belief would be that if he called your name in a crowd of a thousand Vanessas, you know he would, you would know he was talking to you. It wouldn't be like, I think I, like one of the grades I was in, there was like four Kyles in the same classroom, and so you know Kyle, everybody looked. When God calls your name, you know it's him calling your name and not that Vanessa sitting next to you. But it also says that we are called by his name. Not only does he know your name or my name in particular, uh, and I think Revelation, which we're studying in my guy's Bible study, it talks about how to every single one of them was given a white stone with a new name that only the person who was given the stone could understand it, which sounds like something like Harry Potter or the book of Revelation would say. And, and yet, um, and yet at the, it also says we're called by his name. Do you remember that part in Toy Story where Woody the cowboy looks at the bottom of his boot and it says Andy? the kid that owns him, this is, this is what it is like. It is like we have the, the possession and we are so precious in God's eyes that he is very clear about who we are and whose we are, which means in 2018, no matter what happens, no matter if your world is more than or less than 50% terrible, what does not change next year is who you are and what God says about you. What does not change next year is who you are and, and what God says about you. Now, the other side about what God says about us is who God is. And I almost eliminated this point when I was kind of doing my last minute prep this morning. I usually work on my sermon for about an hour in the morning before anybody's awake, um, or at least certainly before Sarah's awake. Um, and uh, <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and, uh, and so we, Steph wakes up part of the way through. And, uh, uh, and so I almost eliminated it because it feels like to talk about who we are and who God is is repetitious. But that's because to talk about one is to talk about the other, such as if you were talking about two sides of the same coin. To say that we are redeemed means that God is a redeemer. To say that we are loved means that God is a lover. To say that we are precious means that God, by his nature, takes delight in and finds us precious. Because there is no verb, by the way, for precious. We are precious because God is the precious, sir, right? Um, there is none of that. Okay, and, and, and Isaiah 43.3 gets to the heart of this when he says, for I am the Lord your God. Now, anytime you see the word Lord in capital L-O-R-D, that is God's sacred name, which is Yahweh, which roughly translated means I am who I am, or I will be what I will be. Who God is, is always entirely consistent with himself. In fact, Hebrews says, uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, for he is always entirely himself, right? All of these traits of who God is remain unchanging like that one variable in algebra that I don't really remember, right? The one that doesn't do anything, right? Um, everything else moves, but that, that one factor is the constant. Is that the word? Constant, thank you. Um, again, pastor, not mathematician. And uh, the only math class I took in college, I tell you this, was called quantitative reasoning. Yeah, I know, but I don't know how to budget, so there's no way I'm stealing from you. So good news on that front. Um, that's so something you say in church. Um, behind the, I, Isaiah 43 attaches these things that we are to who God is in such a way that we peek behind the curtain of who God is 
to find a heart that is consistent and steady, that is what it is and always will be what it will be. In Isaiah 43, we peek behind the curtain of who we are and what God does to see who God is. And when we see who God is, stick with me on this, when we see who God is, it is like a virus that gets into your computer and takes over. It it disallows for religion, it disallows for ritual, and forces forces us, sorry to be corny, squarely into relationship. We are not, when we start to see who God is, when we start to see that he redeems us because he is a redeemer, when we start to see that he loves us because he is a lover, when we start to see that he honors us and cherishes us because that's the very nature of his heart and his character, it's not about let me come to church and sing the songs and throw some money in so I can kind of check this off and move on. All of a sudden, that person gets inside your brain and gets inside your soul such that um, I think Philippians says, um, let it, let's not just think about these things in our heads or feel them in our hearts, but work them out in every detail of our lives. We are not interested. God is not interested in religion because he's not a thing. We just started watching the show Vikings. It's on uh, Amazon Prime. And in the second, first or second season, they, they like every nine years go up to the temple and there is this giant wooden statue that they're like whispering prayers into the ear of or something, right? And and that is not what we do. We're not talking about a thing. Peel back the curtain on a log and it's still a log. Peel back the curtain on the God of Isaiah 43 and you begin to capture the very essence of a person who is exactly who he is no matter what, such that in 2018, whatever change is good or bad, he is entirely himself 100% of the time. That is the good bone. Those of us that have been in church are kind of like, yep, yes, yes, good job, Kyle, yes. But I think we, we take certain truths for granted. And one of those is <clears throat> that God is who he is and that is not changeable. I do need something. I need a beverage, please, thank you. Um, we're just lackadaisical today. Welcome to church on New Year's, you know. Who God is and who he says that we are, those are kind of interchangeable, but it's almost like you almost are adding now a third dimension, like a, a gem, like with large facets that we're turning. Because we, we talk about who God is and who he thinks we are, and that ultimately gets into the idea of what God does. These things stay unchanging. Who he is and our identity stays unchanging. Who, who God is and his identity stays unchanging. And what he does. Let me put it differently. In 2018, God's agenda does not change. In 2018, God's agenda does not change. In 2018, the way, thank you, my beautiful wife. Um, in, in, in 2018, the way that God functions in the world does not change. It remains steadily the same. So look at verse four. Look at verse four. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you and peoples in exchange for your life. In 2018, on God's agenda remains this bullet point. I am willing to pay high prices for your affection and your attention. I am willing to pay high prices. I'm willing to go to great expense and to great cost to, to, for your affection and your attention. God is always trying to get, let me change the language. Jesus is always trying to get your attention. He's trying to get your attention and in the process to have your affection aimed at him. And in 2018, God is still willing to pay high prices for that. 
God is willing to pay the high price of your discomfort. God is willing to pay the high, the high price of the status quo in your life in order to have more of your attention and more of your affection. Romans 8 says, um, he who gave up his own, he who did not spare his own son for us all, will he not then give us all things? Either he's willing to go to these costs and often the cost comes out of our wallet, at least it feels like at first. The cost of a certain relationship or a friendship or a habit or a way of going things, going through a painful process of, of healing and recovery and counseling to kind of come to the place where my attention and affection are more fully devoted to him. God is still willing to pay that high price. It's still on his agenda. Look at verse six. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. I'll bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. In 2018, God will continue the work of tying up the loose ends of our lives. Man, if you don't have a loose end or 3,000 at the end of 2017, you're not living. Some of you have like a loose end from like 2007 that you're still working on. You know what I'm saying? And, and if we saw anything in the book of Ruth, what we saw in the book of Ruth was the God who quietly behind the scenes is taking up the loose ends of our lives to tie them together. And for Ruth, that happened in easy, clean four chapters. For us, we are still waiting. And for some of us, we will have to wait beyond 2018 for the loose ends. But in 2018, God's still engaged in the work of tying up the loose ends of our lives. Verse two, he says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. If you got your own Bible, you should probably like circle this, highlight it, tattoo it on your arm. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flames shall not consume you. God will continue to be with us in the midst of our fires and floods. Can anybody tell me what the, wor the operative word of verse 2 is? Ah, plus 50 points. Whoever, who was that? Was, oh, relative. Good job, Colleen. Colleen and I are fourth cousins eight times removed somehow. Don't understand it, but it's true. The operative word is not if, but when. The text does not say, if by random happenstance you walk through fire, if by a random roll of the dice you go through waters. No, it says when these things happen, I need to get this down into your soul and mine right now so that when suffering happens, you are not caught off guard. We need to put rebar down into our souls because I don't know if you know this, but rebar, and, and it, that's what holds the building when it sways, the rebar. This is why they build skyscrapers out of steel, but they build it with give. I didn't know this until I moved in Chicago. They're not rigid structures. Uh, uh, skyscrapers, like if you're at the top of the Sears Tower on a windy day, you can kind of feel it ever so slightly, which that's, you know, just to live and work in that is comforting. But it's so that the steel that holds it to the ground, that in that give, it is shaken, but it does not collapse. Get it, we need to get our hearts and our minds and into our souls now, what scripture says when it says, do not be surprised when you face trials of various kinds. Do not be surprised. Way too many Christians, a bad thing happens and it blows the whole thing because their God was not God, it was not the Yahweh of the universe, it was something more like a teddy bear that like gave communion every once in a while. That's not how it works. What we're looking for is the deep rebar of, frankly, deep theology that says when 
not if I walk through these hard things, when God is with me. Now, that's, that's a Christmassy thing, right? God with us, Emmanuel, he's a snuggly baby. But here's the thing. God with us is not a cloud in the air that kind of, um, it's not a mist that envelops us. It is not like, there is a sense in which God's presence in the world, like, does like, scripture says he feels, he fills everything everywhere with himself. But, but, so there's this kind of like cloudy, misty version, I suppose, of the presence of God. But in Jesus, the cloudy, misty version of the presence of God is incarnated into a human who is still alive and still risen. Do you remember in the Get Smart movie when, um, uh, what's his name from the office, gets in the cone of silence and he yells and you can hear everything. The other side of this is that, 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 that the presence of God, God with us is not a cone of silence that kind of like travels with us, right? It's not an umbrella. God with us is the risen, embodied Jesus with us in whatever room that we are in in that moment. I was with somebody at the hospital the other day and I prayed for them and out of my mouth came the words, Jesus, you have never once left this room. And he hasn't. There is not a room that you have walked into that Jesus wasn't in because Jesus walks with us. That is what it means. That's what it means that Jesus is with us. It means that this risen, alive Jesus is right next to us experiencing our life with us. Now, this is really important too because we often, we, we have to train our sanctified imaginations to see Jesus wherever we are in the hospital room, on the heart conversation, when you are so mad you want to punch your boss, that there is Jesus right next to you, not judging or, or trying to like feed you lines, simply with you uh, right there as you experience your life. And the reason that we need to engage our sanctified imagination, the reason we need to literally work as a habit to see Jesus right next to us is because otherwise we treat the presence of God like we treat the force. I was just watching The Last Jedi, no spoilers. What does he say? Reach out with your feelings. <laughs> what is that? Like, have you ever tried? I was watching, I was like, okay, let me try. Let, how do I, let's reach out with my feelings. And I was like, mm, like, I re, how, what, that, what is that? What is reaching out with your feelings? Listen, Jesus is not some impersonal force that you have to like quiet your mind to find Jesus from the very moment you say yes to him and indwells you, walks with you. And so it's more and more about developing a practice of seeing, not believing and not grinning your teeth but, and gritting your teeth, but seeing and trusting the Jesus right next to you in the midst of whatever circumstance you're in. Um, after, after one of the miscarriages that we had this year, um, which if you're new to our community, one of is part of our story this year. And... Um, and so I'm on the phone with my spiritual director and Dan, Dan says, I'm sitting on the bed upstairs and Dan says, can you see Jesus in the room with you? And I said, yeah, he's sitting kind of on the end of the bed. And he said, what is Jesus doing? I said, Jesus is crying. And he said, well, what do you, what do you have to say to Jesus about that? And I said, well, that's, I, I literally said at some point, Jesus, you're a jerk because you could have stopped this and you didn't, so your tears are disingenuine. You don't get to cry. And, uh, and so Dan said, well, what does Jesus say to that? I said, nothing. So what's he doing? He's just sitting there. The witness of God 
in our lives, in my life and yours, means that he just sits in the room. He sits in the room. He just sits there and stands there, walks right there with us. Dallas Willard, perhaps one of the spiritual giants of the 20th century, Dallas Willard, who like after, so I had a guy in seminary that always used to say that we will spend the first thousand years in heaven on our faces. We'll be so blown away. After that millennia goes by and we pick ourselves up, I'm going to be like, Jesus, just one second, where is Dallas Willard, right? And Paul's going to be like, hey, I'm Paul. I'm like, don't care. Where's Dallas Willard? Um, uh, Dallas Willard had one spiritual practice at the end of his life that he practiced every day. If you want to read a great book by Dallas Willard, uh, 2017, uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines is a fantastic book. The Spirit of the Disciplines. And if you're, if you're feeling overachieving, the best book on Christian discipleship that has shaped me is The Divine Conspiracy. The only problem is it's this big, <laughs> okay? I read fast. And it was like a summer. And I was like, oh my, Dallas, come on. Like, but uh, we're going to preach through the Sermon on the Mount next, this coming summer. And a lot of what Dallas's book is about is about uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. Dallas Willard said that his only spiritual practice was when he woke up in the morning and his feet hit the floor, he would say out loud, the Lord is here. Every day. You wake up, your feet hit the floor, and you say, the Lord is here. When, I, when I've not been able to sleep at night lately, I've been saying out loud, the Lord is here, and trying to use my divine imagination, seeing Jesus there in the room. Hopefully not like staring over me like creepily while I sleep, right? Um, hopefully Jesus isn't a creeper. Like what if he's the most socially awkward guy you've ever met when we get to heaven? Um, but he's there. When, when, I'm, when I'm walking into a situation that I don't really know even how to engage with, often hospital rooms, okay, the Lord is here. And in those moments when I'm walking through fire, when I'm walking through the waters, really the only calling that God has on my life is to somehow find a way to get, get my attention toward him. Uh, and in the moments where we don't know what to say and don't know what to do, which is frankly all of the time, to see a Jesus who stands right next to us, who says, I am with you. The Lord is here. The Lord is here. We have to reach out with our feelings. We don't need to drum up a sensation. Regardless of our feelings or our circumstances or our thoughts, there is this Jesus who walks beside us all the time. Psalm 73, you are continually at my right hand. Maggie Smith says in her poem that there are good bones in our world, and she's right, there are good bones. What she's wrong about what she's wrong about is that we need sold on it. She says at the very beginning of that poem, she says, I am trying to sell them the world. Any decent realtor walking you through a real chirps on about good bones. This place could be beautiful. You could make this place beautiful. The truth of the matter is the world is already beautiful because there are good bones in it. And, 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 and the truth is that we don't need sold on it. We don't need sold a line. We don't, we don't need somebody like Kyle. My job, by the way, is not to talk you into anything because somebody a lot smarter than me can come along right after and talk you out of it, right? My job, my job is simply to kind of continue to point to the realities, to draw our attention to 
who God is and what his character is like. And in this case, what it means is that in our circum- whatever the circumstance of 2018, good or bad, right? Because when they're good, we tend to puff ourselves up. And when they're bad, we tend to over, we tend to way deflate ourselves, right? We try to smooth ourselves out. The reality is, whatever the circumstances, who I am, what God thinks of me, who God is, and his agenda for 2018 are unmoving. Who God is and what he says I am and what he does and who he is, those things, regardless of circumstance, are immovable. So I don't need sold on anything. I don't need a line. All I need is my attention drawn to the Lord who is here. Who is here when we go to our favorite restaurants and laugh with our friends and watch sunsets and go on vacations and fall in love or fall in love with the person we love all over again. Or it's also, he's also here when we're in the hospital room and when we hear the words that we don't want to hear, when the job we love falls apart, when circumstances just hit it, when our kids come home and say the craziest things. The Lord is here. In 2018, the Lord is king. The Lord is here. He is here and he is king as he has ever been and that will never, ever change. Let's pray. God, um, God, we just give you 2017 and we give you the disappointments. We give you the things that we thought that would be that aren't. We give you the things that we thought would happen but didn't. We give you our failures and we give you our successes. And in 2018, we give you our plans and our hopes and our fears and have no choice on some level or another but to trust you with it. And so, God, my prayer uh, for my friends here is that you would get their attention this year, that you would today shake them out of whatever weird religious ritualistic rut that they're in and that they would see you afresh. God, I pray that we would have hearts that are wide open to your moving in our lives. Jesus, I pray that you would stir up in us new affection for you, that you in 2018 would most importantly grow us as disciples, grow us as people who follow after you, your learners, your friends, that God, we would be more faithfully disciples of Jesus in 2018, that that would be our biggest and greatest and proudest accomplishment. God, I'm thinking of all the things that are going to happen, the things that we already know about. I'm thinking about all the things that we don't, but we pray in whatever circumstance that the good bones of the world that you've built, the good bones, you yourself would be in our midst, that you would be present with us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.